Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk. Fresh meat. Come on, buddy. So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dose of Ether. This is your host, Lucian, and joining me again this week is Evan Van Ness. How's it going, Evan? What's going on? It's good. How are you? Doing well. I'm uh, trying to be productive while working from home. It's almost an oxymoron. <laughs> Impossible. Yeah. <laughs> it, Just wait until you have kids. Trust me. I... Yeah, I can't imagine, actually. I'm so easily distracted, and as soon as something like catches my attention, I'm off. <laughs> I mean, it's mostly about my wife coming in and harassing me with <laughs> things every three minutes, <laughs> but often involving the kids. I'm, anyway. I'm fortunate. My wife is currently the one that is trying to avoid distractions because she's also at home studying, and uh, she has a much more strict regiment than I do. Um, I feel kind of bad for her actually <laughs> it's it's quite intense she's like at home studying for like three months straight waking up at five in the morning like 16 hours worth of work basically trying to keep sane um, <laughs> I can I can pretty much guess what she does I mean I actually know what she does but I can pretty much guess it even if I didn't just by what you said okay I guess <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's only there's only some sort of doctor involved. Right, there. right, <laughs> exactly. It's uh, she's on her way to take her board exams, and um, it's strange watching how much route memorization is involved. It's um, it's kind of difficult in the sense that like the structure of the exams are um, an absolutely unimaginable amount of content on top of. Uh, gotcha questions and the worst part is like I've only actually looked at her statistics questions because everything else is in a foreign language but the statistics questions are probably the worst of all because they're not actually math questions they're gotcha questions based around like the niche vocabulary of um, like the way medical research explains statistics like the statistics is all normal distribution you have to have large population sizes and you're essentially measuring extremes and effectiveness it's simple normal distributions but when you like take the question structure for like the rest of their exams and everything is like oh you meant to say like how many false positives rather than um like people who tested positive but actually had the disease like stupid slip-ups like that are basically the crux of the entire question bank it's kind of annoying but yeah it's um it's just a very high bar to test and it's mostly preparation but i do not have that kind of stress because (laughs) I mean, doctors never ever give me a good statistical answer like in my entire life whenever I've asked about anything. So the fact that they get statistical questions is sort of hilarious to me because, I mean, asking a doctor for any sort of probabilistic estimate is like asking a macroeconomist about or a, you know, an investor or whatever about like what the market is going to do. Um <laughs> or what the economy is going to do. I mean, they will spin you a long narrative that makes them sound smart, but really has means like they have no idea and refuse to put any sort of number on it, even to like any degree. (laughs) The only problem is that doctors actually have some kind of legal liability for giving you a wrong answer while an economist is like, what? No one knows what they're talking about here. (laughs) It's like, oh, you thought I was confusing you with math because I knew what was going on? Nope, this is economics. <laughs> it's wishful thinking with formulas to basically exclude people from participating. <laughs> yeah. I could go into that. We can, there's a lot of rants we could go into here. Let's just jump into yeah. it. So what's the first topic of the week? Uh, the first topic of the week is an NBA player um, putting his... Um, 
future three-year future salary in an Ethereum smart contract so that he could cash out his future earnings early. Yeah. So it's it's NBA guard Spencer Dinwiddie. He plays for the Nets. He makes like $13 million a year. He actually, the NBA... He, he had a, a cooler, uh, like his, his original idea was much cooler than, than what he ended up being able to do because the NBA wouldn't let him do it. Basically, he was going to uh, include the player. Um, sorry, there is a team. Uh, he would be able to opt out of his contract. I, I think there was like some sort of upside. I'm yeah, it's called sure like a player option. Was. Which means that like you could be traded in your last year, so you could renegotiate like part of the contract. Um, In addition, it's also if he makes the playoffs, there are special bonuses. So if he had the options included in the smart contract rather than just the base salary, then if he does and plays better, then there's upside to it. Instead, they flipped it and they let him issue the equivalent of a bond. It's a bond that has like a little bit between four and five percent interest rate a year. Um, you have to be an accredited investor to be able to buy into it. Each uh, sliver is a thousand, a uh, hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and there could only be something like ninety accredited investors. Um, and he's taking eight of them to the uh, to certain game. <laughs> There's there's ninety there's ninety tokens at one hundred and fifty thousand dollars yeah. piece, and and so one hundred fifty is is the is the minimum, and uh, of course there are securities there you know if you have to be an accredited investor like you said, it, what is actually not exactly clear is like how much the interest rate is like the media reports all seem to have different um, different numbers like it could be. Five percent, four point nine five percent, technically, uh, a year. It could be per month, although that seems unlikely. Um, my guess is that it's actually basically five percent a year, uh, because there's not really that much risk in the deal. Like he is literally, uh, I mean, NBA contracts are guaranteed, so you, um, you basically like you. He would have to like fail a drug test or violate the you know the morals clause in which case i think you would like still get your principal back but you would like probably not get interest or something um like so the the downside is like relatively low it's an interesting idea um but there is none of the original like possible upside that he had had in there i remember like some of his early interviews um and a lot of the news reports basically talk up his uh his experience with cryptocurrency in general and about how he's like been trying to get his fellow players into uh, Bitcoin, for example. And he's like basically been in the space for a very long time. Um, Basically he wants to trans he wants to cash out early because he's afraid of like the value of his contract actually getting devalued through inflation right and he basically wants to like cash out earlier because he wants to be protected from the effects of inflation and that was some of like some of the uh talking points he's made earlier it's um I don't know. I think it's a security token. It's a very high profile security token. And in my book, it's much more interesting than like tokenizing luxury properties, for example, Um, something that once I actually looked into, I thought was actually a very bad idea. (laughs) Um, Real estate is like, it's not something that you can go into without having done the due diligence and to do due diligence, you wouldn't, you would expend more resources than like the marginal benefit of buying small shares in a a tokenized luxury real estate property. There's a information um, imbalance essentially between you and the person selling the token. In this case, it seems to be 
high profile and it also seems like the nba commission themselves have negotiated um well to de-risk they were afraid that it was going to be interpreted as gambling if they kept the player options but yeah yeah and you can actually see their point there right because um you know not the, I, my guess is they probably weren't as worried about his in particular but you can see that if they let him do it and somebody comes along the line with like a little bit different twist on it, blah, blah, blah. Eventually they do get to the point where, you know, it is, you, you'll have some weird incentives. And, you know, a lot of times, especially in these sort of things, like the lawyers are super risk averse and, uh, you know, won't let you do it because that's sort of what you pay them to, 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 to tell you. Right. right. Um, I could also see the, a situation in which a boxer basically like bets against himself because he's with the money that he cashed out early before his fight. <laughs> it's like that kind of perverse incentives. Um, I'm assuming. I mean, there. I didn't see anything within the specific contract, but I assume that's what they're trying to avoid. And sports yeah, betting is now yeah, becoming I think legal. In the long run, yeah. Sports betting is now becoming legal. I mean, on a state-by-state basis. So it'll be interesting if... um, I haven't seen, like, a resurgence of uh, blockchain-based betting sites, like sports betting or the like, that take advantage of, like, the loosened state regulations. I haven't seen anything come as a result. Betting used to be a really big, like, ICO marketing ploy um, early on that I thought was like, oh, it makes sense. You want to set up an unstoppable like payment system? Yeah, you're probably going to do something that's marginally legal. <laughs> um, and as a result, I always thought betting was going to be like a bigger market than it is. In Ethereum, I don't think betting is very large at all. Yeah, I mean, I think it really comes down to when Augur is 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 scalable and easier to use and faster and cheaper and I, frankly they're about to ship v2 and I, I actually think it's like my pick for one of the sleeper hits of 2020 are they going to make me you run know, a client so that they could keep it decentralized <laughs> i really didn't like the user interface and i honestly didn't find it intuitive at all not to mention like the fundamental problem of um auger was the idea that some people word questions to be intentionally deceiving like the old yeah they fixed they all did that. i mean it, it was terrible i mean for sure but like i mean they at least have like strong mitigations against a lot of that because it was ridiculous for a solid bit of time right yeah I, i'm very interested uh, but, to see how they fixed it and they have the reputation to be able to deliver it um they definitely did show some weaknesses in their early model and people were very ju- quick to jump onto it and exploit it. Yeah, indeed. The The thing I was going to say about Dinwiddie is he... It's not clear to me who the natural natural constituency is for this thing. Because if you think about it, it's, you know, it's code on Ethereum. So he's going to put money into this contract. I don't... I mean, I haven't... I actually didn't read the perspectives. I don't think you did either i've only seen the media media accounts um but i i sort of doubt that like it is anything more than they're going to like just do the transactions to their token holders every month like manually um I, you know I, I might be wrong there like they might have written a little bit of a code that they deployed on chain that will you know divert it for them but i kind of doubt it to be honest with you um talk about an oracle and, problem it's like how do you know how much dinwiddie yeah. got paid <laughs> yeah yeah i mean to be fair like i i think it's like fair i mean that's he has a legal obligation to you right because this is all like regulated and uh you you could easily sue of course would it make economic sense to sue like in any sort of disagreement probably not but hey um you know, you're like, like I said, like you're probably fine there. I mean, you know, it's the high profile too, so he's not going to want to take any sort of regulatory risks. Like again, like the league would get on his case. But as I said, like he, I mean, it's on Ethereum, but so that means like you know, like your Bitcoiners, like I mean, do they want to like put something into Ethereum when then they now have to have a Bitcoin or an Ethereum address? 
you know, there is some group out there that is just like a general crypto audience, but I definitely think like the hardcore Bitcoiners, they don't want it. Uh, he just recently, Spencer Dinwiddie, that is, tweeted about how he loved some like XRP, like Shillbot YouTuber, which, you know, I think that, well, that's an, that's an interesting judgment. <laughs> Let me just say that. I hope, I hope he cashes out like the third or quarter of his salary that he gets and just goes all in, trades his ether for XRP. And uh... <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't wish that on anybody. <laughs> I... Uh, I think we've already like the people behind Ripple have already gotten rich enough selling out their, their, their pre-mined token. Um, the, but, but I, I, anyway, I mean, my point there is just, it's not really clear to me who the like hardcore people are that want to, you know, are accredited investors that want to cash out, put money down for this token because the Venn, you know, if you think about the Venn diagram, it's like, well, you have to be into crypto, but also be willing to like sell out at these prices. So it's like not an ETH whale either, right? Like what ETH whale is going to want to give their ETH away for like, you know, a bond like return, like presumably nobody, you know? Um, so it, it's, I mean, it's somebody that basically is going to invest fiat that is willing to deal with this token so they have some familiarity and comfort with crypto um but you know maybe maybe he'll sell it all out it's i think it's 13 and a half million total and you know you know there are crypto whales out there that you know might just take the 13 and a half million in crypto and like sure why not because it is a relatively low return now if it is five percent i mean it's sort of crazy like five percent a year it's sort of crazy because you can get 6% on compound per year or on die savings rate. And you're not locked so, in and you can maintain. Yeah. Yeah. There's like, there's a bunch of stuff you could do basically. But you know, the, I've seen people like criticizing this and uh, I mean, I think he's been relatively clear that like he's doing it to innovate also, I think he is like bought the like the, the sort of standard like kind of crank macroeconomic Bitcoiner line about how like the economy is about to like you said he's worried about inflation and he said that he's sort of like like one of his motivations for this is that he's basically going to cash out the money he gets from this to buy Bitcoin because he thinks it's like undervalued relative to the dollar, which I think is like insane because I'm not a Bitcoiner, but um, it is like an interesting an interesting play you know i yeah i wasn't I, sure I, if I, he was going to spend says. it all on bitcoin i hadn't read that um but it's also interesting because the way ethereum is designed he isn't even obligated to actually use ether as the value transfer mechanism he could actually use ethereum as simply like a bookkeeping or accounting ledger that demonstrates that he's issued 90 uh dwindy coins i mean i think you might I, I would assume that he would pay in some sort of stable coin right some i would assume that as well that, but that yeah. would also mean that they assuming these investors that buy into this token aren't already within the uh ethereum ecosystem then they would purchase 13 million dollars worth of ether in the market today because that's when I, th I think he's accepting Bitcoin too, to be fair. Like, I think he's accepting a bunch of crypto. As, I don't know if that's how it works as, to actually like issue a token. But anyways, he could use Ethereum simply as like the unit of account, which keeps track of like the DeWindy coins. And that doesn't make sense. But yeah. I mean, like I said, I don't think he's actually deployed any. I, I don't I mean, I could be wrong here. Like I said, I didn't read the perspectives, but I don't get the feeling that they deployed a ton of code like i don't think this is a trustless model where you know like even like they whitelist the people like they kyc the people that are accredited investors and then they whitelist their address and then it's like trustless like if you send money to this then we send we trustlessly send it automatically back like uh, frankly i think that they're most likely doing a lot of this just off chain and using crypto as a payment rail mm. and that's basically it. yeah and like probably even you know there is i mean i'm just guessing because 
if you so security tokens you know you were talking about real estate uh earlier and like i totally agree that there is a an, an information asymmetry asymmetry problem in fact i wrote a blog post on that like a year ago like maybe more about how i thought security token hype was way overdone um but uh like security tokens a lot of them in order to sell the real estate security token they basically would like custody for it like do a custodial option so it really wasn't any different than any other real estate investment like there was theoretically a token involved but it was very theoretical right. um so it's been unclear to me like i said having not read the perspective from the press reports as to how much of this is like actually on jane um but hey, like I said, I mean things things do start out looking like toys. I think it is a an interesting prototype, um, and like credit to him for being willing to ex experiment. And uh, you know he's putting his skin in the game and uh, getting more crypto right now. I yeah. The coolest idea that I heard was that if his uh, performance options remained in the contract, then we could actually see a real fantasy. Uh, basketball in this case real fantasy basketball league in which um, assets that are being traded are attached to actual value yeah it would have been it would have been super cool i i, I totally agree with that i could if, see that in the like, future i mean it would have been much cooler if they if they had let him could you go. imagine um, if yeah. athletes um like actual salary caps were floating <laughs> right like could you imagine if like players were openly tradable on open markets and you could own like 5% of outstanding like player contracts in like a pure sense and essentially like all trades and all transactions actually had you as an equity owner. I don't know how that would work because the player should just keep 100% of it, but <laughs> it like I liked the so idea of it. Um, so that i mean there's actually that's a different angle that we haven't talked about but there is actually a long history of people trying to do almost exactly that um and like you aaron foster i remember was one who did it um and you know of course there's david bowie back in the day who did like a, a bond like thing as well um so the, the funny thing is that almost all of these have been like awful awful investments um including bowie who was an awful awful investment but then because he did it in like the late nineties and then of course, you know, CDs, blah, blah, blah on the internet, um, tanked the music industry. And then, uh, streaming and iPod sales actually brought it back up. And so I think it's actually ended up being a pretty decent investment if you held it the entire mm -hmm. time. Um, but which is, you know, sort of amusing, but there, I mean, there is a history of, of, of people trying to do this, not on blockchain. Um, but, like over the years and it's never really been a good investment but it's also been different than than this um it's been more more like what you said like a more general thing whereas dinwiddie it's just like flat out like this is the contract i have i'm tokenizing it it's guaranteed give me money up front and i'll give you a little bit extra more than inflation back right this just reminded me that this is actually very similar to Singularity DTV and the fact that they tokenized Grammatic's uh, record sales. Um, I met with them at DevCon. I should probably follow up with them. I'm a huge Grammatic fan. Um, and I mean, I'm interested to see how that actually goes. Um, I've also downloaded the Singularity DTV app. And they have some really good independent documentaries, including some about crypto, like very high production value, in my opinion. But I don't actually know. Um... I saw I saw one on a plane the other day. I mean, the one that got released last oh, year. Oh, yeah? I'm trying to remember what it was called. Oh, the blockchain one? Uh, uh, Trust Machines, I think? Yeah. Trust Machines. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I bet that got like very wide circulation. And I don't know how media makes money. I say, well producing media <laughs> thanks listeners it doesn't spoiler spoiler alert <laughs> um i but i'm curious to see how this goes and i wonder i really do wonder if there could be a more like dynamic optionality to this it'd be interesting if um 
athlete athletes could like start becoming free agents on like a free floating market in which options are actually publicly traded obviously it would be done on a cryptocurrency based system it'd be really cool if artists could do that too um and it's really hard to see how like deep vested interests and monopoly owned industries like entertainment and the monopolies that are the sports franchises um will handle this kind of thing it seems like one of those things in which a monopoly would just counter into like counter react in the opposite direction yeah so um next we should talk about some of the new technology news that has gone on in ethereum um we have um two updates that you've probably heard about before on this show um that we could bring up and talk about fairly quickly uh, one is the fact that viper the um competitor to solidity for smart contractor programming now has a new implementation for its compiler, which is also simultaneously compatible with the EVM and the new execution, a Wasm execution environment that will be used in ETH too. Yeah, it's, yeah. So I guess background here and I will figure out as I talk how much background I go into. You know, the like the from from the start of Ethereum, there have been a bunch of high level languages. Only really Solidity has ever gotten enough traction. The second one, but there's always been like a Pythonic, like a, a language like Python alternative. Early on, it was called Serpent, and uh, that uh, I think that was Vitalik's language, just like Python, or just like Viper ended up being. Um, and actually, Augur wrote their first, uh, like they they wrote they had the site ready they had they were ready to launch Augur and they did a an audit of the of the of the Serpent compiler and it failed the audit miserably. Open Zeppelin found a bunch of stuff. Um, in fact, even like you can find in like 2016 mid 2016, I think Open Zeppelin found uh, a bug in the in the token like the auger token so they had to migrate their token <laughs> and um so anyway there was recently a a an audit you know it was like sort of not a real real audit but um an, an audit of the viper compiler and it again like it they found a lot of holes and they you know like they they said it wasn't even like a real audit where they like went full bore so um you know it's a weird thing because viper has definitely been just like serpent was it's kind of on the back burner like you know it's hard to get a language to be reasonably ready to get used in production but and until you do you probably don't want to spend a ton of resources on it but you know if it, so if it's not ready for production do you want to put a bunch of resources into it so it's sort of been like a community effort like there have been some people at ef also that have worked on it it's been somebody at its at status who uh who worked on it but um you know not a lot of stuff is written in viper um that, i mean like Uniswap, the first version of uniswap was though only um, the first version so there is some i think the current version too yeah, well, we're still on the first oh, version. Okay. <laughs> He's about to release version two relatively soon, but I'm pretty sure it's in Solidity. Oh, okay. Um, anyway. That's actually really funny because he's the only project that I knew that wrote anything in Viper. <laughs> yeah, and I think that they probably did bytecode level um, optimizations, you know, audits yeah. for. Yeah. I mean, so because they, I mean, they knew that the compiler was probably not super ready for production so i know i'm rambling a bit here but it's sort of i think interesting um, background in that so the the people that have been working on it you know they they got back the audit results and they said okay well we'll start fixing these uh basically i think some people at the ef thought like hey we should 
we should start over. Like, I think the Python team decided that the best way to get into production was just to start with a new code base. And the people in the community didn't really like that. And so there's a fork and now there's two versions of the Viper compiler. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens going forward. Um, the, 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 the old one is, is, I mean, they say they've patched some of the bugs and they're, you know, they're making progress towards patching all of them. Uh, the, you know, the new fork says basically they don't even think that patching the ones that have been found is enough. Like they think there's probably more. And so they're writing a, a new version of the compiler in Rust that will target uh, Yule, which is an intermediate language, which then um, gets you the EWASM and EVM. So that was a lot of rambling. I'm going to stop there. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the real question is, is this closer to getting us a formally verifiable Ethereum smart contract programming language? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think we're a long ways away still from Viper being a a language that is ready for production use. Okay, good to know. I mean, I think anything you write in Viper for either compiler for any sort of foreseeable future, I mean, you're just going to have to get bytecode, yeah. you know, uh, audits done. And of course, there, that's more expensive and there's, you know, less people that can do it. But that's also already considered a best practice, to be fair. You know, if you're deploying legit code, you should be doing that sort of thing. Now, if you're doing like an experiment that maybe, you know, a less rigorous, that won't have a ton of money in it, a ton of value in it, then maybe less rigorous audits is required. But I mean, if you're a maker, you know, they spent more time auditing and verifying and whatnot than they did developing, writing it originally. Right. They they pioneered new methods with uh, with new teams actually to formally verify their um, smart contracts, and I want an alternative to Solidity, um, but at the same time I think there should be a a very formal but simple programming language that if you say like okay I only need Ethereum to do A to Z then like there's something beyond just using open zeppelin uh, established packages and then like trying to limit the amount of new code that you make it might just be easier just to have something that has a greatly reduced instruction set that uh, reduces the attack surface but it only allows you to do things like set up a um I don't know, multi-sig wallet that is in charge of like transferring money to whitelisted addresses for payroll, something like that. I think there is definitely space and I have been looking into other programming languages. It's just that they're not exactly EVM compatible. Um, for example, like Kadana has uh, a formally verified smart contract programming language, um, even uh, Blockstream has simplicity, but the problem is, is that if no one uses <laughs> those languages and no one uses like the liquidity platform or whatever, or, uh, Kadana, the problem is, is that like, even if you have a good formally verified smart contract programming language, you don't have the rest of the infrastructure built around it. And then I would instantly go back to using Solidity because, I have auditing, I have established smart contracts, I have best practices, I have like all of this stuff. And in the end, it's weird to say, but Solidity is more powerful than 95% of the use cases on the network. It's nice to have that ability. Most people never really make use of it. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how in Ethereum 2, we're going to have a completely different execution engine. We won't have the EVM as we know it today. The EVM is basically going to be rewritten within an execution engine written in Wasm. And that opens up the possibility of new programming languages, more competition. Um, and Viper has always been like the opportunity for 
Ethereum to rewrite a programming language from the ground up so that like the lessons learned in the past five years would actually result in a simpler and better development environment. There's a lot, a lot to react to in there. Uh, I, I, I guess like the first one that comes ahead comes to mind or immediately is that uh, like it's, it's, I mean, it, it, execution environments, the plan is that it's even more than just EWASM, right? That it's, um, it's basically you can write a set of rules like that, the quote unquote execution environment. So like you could do UTXOs at the ex, you know, at the bytecode level of, of execution environment or Zcash or, you know, whatever. Um, so, so that's one thing separately. Um, I was going to like, one thing I was going to say is, you know, it's not even just Viper, like the, there have been a bunch of, of higher level languages. Right. And um, it's just, none of them have really ever caught on and solidity was the language that was supposed to make it easy. You know, like it was supposed to be very approachable for your average developer. And it definitely succeeded at that. Of course, that meant that it wasn't super secure, like especially in the early days. Um, and, you know, definitely didn't necessarily train developers in the best way, which is why we had some, you know, hiccups like in the in the early days security wise. Um, I guess like third thing, which I had like probably like 10 things I could have reacted to there, but I'll probably cut off here is that one of the like ethereum grants program the uh the um, they partnered it with it was called flynn flynn, flynn. Mm. yeah well so i mean multiple i mean it didn't give them a lot of money but essentially that is like the facebook's i think it's move uh, a lot of it is basically like the a fork of that or the same ideas and um so you know this it will happen uh like it, it has been a long slog to get better languages um and you know hey like i mean if you think about like you know I, i'm an investor in near for example which is you know a bit of an ethereum competitor but they're trying to like you know recruit people outside of the blockchain space rather than within our own little bubble here um and they you know they have slick tooling and it's just typescript that compiles to wasm and uh, so it's familiar for normal devs. Um, you know, in the future, I think it'll be possible to just have write a line, like use something that compiles to the LLVM and have it, that compile to EWASM or to the EVM. And there is a project out there right now that is like a EVM LLVM interpreter, right? So, um, in fact, I think actually ETC is mostly funding that. And I think he's looking for open source contributors if anybody out there listening is super technical and thinks that sounds incredible, <laughs> should go do it. Yeah, it's um, also the Ethereum Foundation funded um, a organization called Formal Verification, essentially to- Runtime run verification. Time verification. Uh, the people from um, the University of Illinois. You. And it's very interesting because these are like, this is the major company behind the K framework, um, which is like the industry standard for formally verified programs. Um, yeah, the Hashing It Out has a lot of episodes with people attempting to write formally verified programming languages. I'm just surprised that we don't have one yet on Ethereum. Um, but it's also because people know that the EVM is going to change. So why implement completely breaking changes when people have code that needs to run that would literally be impossible to fork over to a different set of rules. Um, but yeah, speaking. K, K is not easy. I mean, I know very smart people who were like, yeah, I just don't get K. <laughs> Um, so that is that is an issue. You know, there's also the issue of like, you know, formal verification is verifying a spec, right? So it doesn't even guarantee that you are bug free. It just hopefully limits 
lo limits the zone of, of error. It guarantees that your uh, program works as you designed it, but it doesn't mean you designed it properly. Yeah, yeah. It does it, that your spec that you as you design it in that language is correct. Um, but yeah, hey, it's uh, I mean, it is still we always say it's early days. Oh, the other thing I was going to say in there is that formal verification is one of those things much like zero knowledge stuff, which has taken off or had a resurgence because of crypto, because of Ethereum, whatever, um, which uh, you know, th those, th they're both areas that have been around for a while, but there's now money because crypto is pouring into it. So it's cool to see that, you know, advances are being made in computer science because of, of this stuff. Yeah. So it's a good transition to get into zero knowledge rollup. There was some new, um, new benchmarking information from Starkware. Uh, do you want to get into it? Yeah, so the, I mean, the the headline is nine thousand transactions per second, and that I, I mean, I have no doubt. I mean, Starkware is a legit organization. I have no doubt that that is true. Um, the caveat is that it is with off-chain data, as in not a rollup. <laughs> so the <clears throat> the the whole point of of a rollup is basically that you put the data on chain, and then um, you are your 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 side chain, your layer two rollup chain is assured of being trustless because you can always basically exit to the main chain because you've got all the data on the chain and you're sure that it's there, and so you can just submit your proof. Um, you still depend on so um, others for data availability, though, right? Yeah, well, so with this off-chain data, I mean, it's like you can get a much higher number by by not putting your data on-chain. Right. Is basically what it comes to. Yeah, another thing about and, the uh, Starkware implementation is that um, the actual transaction pool is also off-chain. And that's a pretty big thing. Um, you basically have to trust the matchmaking service well, I think the zero knowledge proof can prove that the matchmaking service was fair, but I'm not sure if it does. Um, it's basically. I don't know if they've released details on that. Like, I mean, I, as we said, it's not a roll up, so it's basically a plasma. And I, I, like, I haven't seen roll up, I haven't seen the like the spec or the the you know the general. The language that says what they're doing i've listened to I a podcast recently um i will probably link it um below explaining why they uh they partnered with this specific team and how some of these scaling advantages have but yeah you're right it's basically a zero knowledge implementation of plasma as opposed to roll up um although we didn't plan to talk about this a company did announce the first in public implementation of um, optimistic rollup this week. Yeah, Fuel, Nick Dodson, and John Adler shipped the. You know, they're doing they're doing a little bit different. I mean, it is it is an optimistic rollup. So you have a, you put the data on chain, and then um, instead of proving it with a zero knowledge thing, you well, zero knowledge proof, you use, you basically uh, can submit a fraud proof if somebody tries to, to do something whack. Um, anyway, they shipped, they shipped their first testnet. They are planning to have a series of testnets over the next few months to try to get towards mainnet. It is a, so, you know, this is a more like a payment network so it's for tokens and you know eth or tokens and that's how they're going to um yeah, it's aimed at that right whereas starkware and loopring are basically dexes exchanges and they are much different um and i guess this is a bit of a tangent as well but loopring is you know they've also shipped some some big numbers but i think like a, a a reasonable point here is that you know i think loop ring is putting their data on chain and so they they're at like a thousand transactions per second right now 
you know, theoretical max. And what really matters is, um, it's having the demand for those, right? Like if you, if you have an, an exchange, I mean, there's, we can do 35 simple ETH transactions per second on Ethereum right now, right? And we're not always, you know, my point is like, there's no demand for hundreds of thousands of transactions per second right now. It's not the limiting factor. Um, and, and having some of the scalability will, I think, unlock some of that demand because it'll be cheaper and faster and whatnot. But it's not just like an immediate, like, oh, wow, we get to use 10,000 transactions per second. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's also um, the potential privacy benefits that happen um, in addition to this. So having a ZK rollup that increases the throughput that you can have um, in addition to providing a layer of obfuscation, but maintaining provable fairness, I think is the sweet spot. Um, I And it seems tangible. It seems actually within reach in the point of like not having to deploy um, enterprise solutions on um, like private networks seems like we're pretty close to that. Although I don't think enterprises are going to be the first ones to implement these types of experimental um, use cases. But I think that once they do see them in production, I I can only imagine like I I know for personal <laughs> reasons that I would start using uh, public networks, and yeah. The combination of scalability and privacy in tandem is kind of the sweet spot, and this promises to do both. So there's one more uh, topic of conversation that we wanted to cover, and this one was kind of a surprise. Um, Slockit, or Slock.it, um, released a new client called Incubed, and... It's a client that's made for low power IoT devices. And I think it's a very, very interesting approach. Um, I know kind of what they're trying to do with it. They, like their newer mission statement nowadays was to essentially have Ethereum powered um, physical devices that, for example, you have like a locker in a German train station and you could scan and pay that locker with Ethereum and unlock it using the key that you paid for uh, paid for with um, it sounds interesting very promising the combination of like the hardware physical IOT security aspects and uh, Ethereum mainnet has a lot of uh, potential use cases that I've personally explored and um, I'm super excited about this, so I wanted to share to more people. Yeah, I guess I'll like talk like a little bit of context. I mean, like clients that you know just serve the the headers. Um, the, I mean, it's possible. the The problem we've had in Ethereum is that it's on altruism basically, and the as in somebody has to serve these headers to people and like not a lot of people do and so if you try to run a like client sometimes it can take a long time to find somebody that'll serve you that data um, because nobody's incentivized to do it now zolt has been working on this for a while and i've heard that he's getting close um, to shipping an incentivization model um, of course i think he's been close close for a while and you know often the the hardest part is the is the final bit, uh, but um, you know the Slackit is a little bit like a little bit of a different twist. Um, I mean, it's super lightweight, um, as as you said. I mean, it's like 150 kilobytes um, in one version, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully it unlocks some some uh, some use cases. Uh, to be fair, I guess we should say. The, they don't have the incentivization model yet. That's supposed to come next. So, um, you know that, and that's obviously an important layer. But yeah, I'm excited. You know, I 
I wrote about this. I, I do a little annotated version of Weekend Ethereum the past few weeks that I've just putting been putting on my personal site, evanvanness.com. And I thought I would have thought three years ago that we would have had a lot more Internet of Things on, you know, like I would have thought it would have been Ethereum's main use case right now. And it's obviously not. Uh, and I, yeah, I would like it to be. I mean, I think it's like a, a use case that makes a ton of sense. Um, but I think one thing I've realized is that for it to be more than just like a hobbyist thing, like there needs to be a specific interesting angle. Otherwise you end up dependent on enterprise partnerships and big businesses will do these prototypes all day long, but like manufacturing a hardware that's ready to deal with this, et cetera, et cetera, is, is fairly complicated. I can uh, speak a little bit on why it's been so difficult to ship production IoT applications on Ethereum. Um, first one is um, small form factor computers technically don't have trusted hardware components and every Ethereum application depends on private keys being pushed to end users. So if you don't have like a secure enclave signing on behalf of a device, then it's really difficult to have a security model within these small form factor computers that's compelling enough to use something as heavy as a blockchain node for networking. Um, the other aspect is that to be synced with a blockchain network, you have much higher data overhead. It's just unavoidable currently. Um, there are there's a lot of progress that I've been witnessing. For example, warp sync is an example of reducing the overall network uh, overhead in um, getting up to date information and. The lack of uh, fully trustless light clients and the lack of incentivization built into core clients has been um, has been a problem. Slocket isn't the first to obviously try uh, doing a light client. Both Geth and Parity have implementations of light clients, and both of them, of course, do fall flat when it comes to incentivization. It's um, I've read quite a bit about Parity's documentation regarding how they um, want to run light clients. They had uh, Frederick, the CTO of Parity, had a really interesting blog post on his vision of the future of clients. And it was a little bit of foreshadowing of Parity pulling their support for their Ethereum client. But um, one of the main crux that he wrote is that client developers could actually include incentives directly into the client software itself, not only for themselves, but also for uh, like payments from light clients, for example. Um, and this is essentially because you always need someone else to serve you data. And it's very hard to have trust minimizing properties um, without something like zero knowledge proofs or um, like periodic static uh, status checks, but even with these, um, you end up having like a lot of extra overhead, especially with network communication for light clients. So those have been kind of like the two roadblocks. Um, I haven't seen a lot of work being done regarding physical hardware key um, security. I've played around with almost every hardware private key um, management system that I found. And they all have drawbacks and none of them are really easily uh, easy to integrate into an IoT device. Um, and there was actually like an early project that I saw on Weekend Ethereum that tried to bring a secure enclave onto um, a Raspberry Pi and they ended up canceling the project and uh, returning the funds. So, um, wait, was that was that Elk, the Egyptian guys? Uh, was that Elk, the Egyptian guys? No, I think Elk was the wasn't Elk one of the projects that won um, at Denver. East Denver. Yeah, yeah, and then they did a Kickstarter last summer. No, it was a 
project. It was like an established company that started something with Z. Um, oh, yeah. The ones that were working with uh, Zimbit. Zimbit, yeah. yeah. Elk, I saw, did a crowdfunding campaign. Um, but they were building more than just like the uh, the chip, the secure enclave. Um, it's it's not easy actually to have because imagine this like you have a Raspberry Pi scaled down version of a Linux operating system and you always keep ports on it open so that you could do development on it and then you have to secure it and putting a crypto key onto it while keeping those ports open just makes for this like pretty bad security environment in which like if you leave it out in the open internet it could just be detected that it has ports open um if you uh keep it within your network then it's not as useful um there's there's not a lot of good solutions really and um the worst part is the fact that IoT security in the mainstream is so embarrassingly bad that introducing like such a high level of security, like something that's secure enough to actually store or manage cryptocurrency keys is a much higher bar than industry leaders are currently putting themselves against, right? Um, some of the IoT devices that we have in our houses are trivially easy to compromise. And, uh, like there's, for example, like printers within your house, they essentially are the weakest links because they don't have the same kind of, uh, rigid security testing and it hasn't made a difference for their sales, right? It's not like, uh, an IOT device that gets like a high profile security data breach, um, all of a sudden like stops selling. And it, this has led to people developing centralized models. And sure, you have all of your surveillance, uh, all of the cameras set up in your house streaming straight to a cloud service. You just have a password-based login system and anyone can compromise your password and watch your kid in your house, <laughs> you know? And this is currently the state of the art of the IoT industry. So the level of difficulty and added effort to have like a much higher standard of security than um, the market is currently asking for has just been like too much time and development effort to really push IoT. But that doesn't mean that there isn't like a massive untapped potential of where IoT devices are able to actually like think, act and function like um, economic actors. The ideas behind having self-driving cars actually pay for their own electricity while being charged. I've actually seen like prototypes and projects of, uh, of this being implemented for drones, for example. And the incentives and the technology are there. It's just that um, like the actual ways to securing such lower powered devices hasn't really been pushed to the front of consciousness for consumers, so it hasn't been prioritized for development. Um, it's unfortunate, but yeah. I mean, I guess quick plug in here, it's not exactly related, but tangential for Grid Plus that is developing the Lattice One because the just in general, any sort of hardware, not even for IoT, is like pretty easily compromised if you have physical access like including your nano ledgers and your trezor of course has to be somebody that knows what they're doing right which is like really probably what makes your your hardware wads the most safe is that most people don't know what they're doing um but if somebody does have access to those things then they can be fairly easily compromised um by by somebody that knows what they're doing um whereas like Grid Plus is doing this Lattice One agent, which will be, you know, you know, a much more secure to physical tampering than anything else that um, is out there on the market. Um, you know, and I think a lot of people will probably end up using it for their ETH too, as in like the. Um, assuming I'm pretty sure it'll be possible to do this, but like just leaving your your signing key on there or something like that, and and signing from the device. Um, whereas like your, you know, your beacon chain will be on 
on on the computer um it's you know it's an interesting model like right now i know that like a lot of like miners and whatnot like they jerry rig up these like you know nano ledgers or trezos trezors or whatever um and it's actually a little bit dangerous because i mean these these devices like they haven't been around that long and probably aren't built to you know be constantly signing transactions um like they are in some of these mining uh, mining setups so hmm. yeah hardware hardware is hard and i mean grid plus has found that out they've been almost shipping for a while now but um, i think they are actually about to ship and i think it's a worthwhile investment if you you know if you own crypto and you want to you know feel confident that your stuff can't be tampered with if somebody tries yeah we've had the uh guys from grid plus on a past episode i ordered a um a lattice and i'm waiting as well as you are are you in the part of texas in which you could take advantage of the electricity and energy saving costs from like paying with crypto i actually just paid my power bill today and i think my bill was like a hundred dollars and i had bought some grid like a few days ago maybe a week or maybe a couple weeks actually and i think i paid fifteen dollars in equivalent for the grid that i redeemed for my hundred dollar power bill so i got like 85 percent off of my power bill so yeah if you're in texas which is uh, most of which is you have to be in the encore or center point regions but that is most of texas outside of like maybe way west texas and austin and san antonio have these weird uh, are also like a little bit weird, um, but like most of the rest of Texas, like Dallas and and Houston, and um, are are in Grid Plus, and you can do this and redeem Grid, and it's a spectacular deal. Yeah, that's awesome. You should have opened with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the problem is how many people are listening here that are in Texas that haven't heard about this. I don't, honestly, I don't know. I mean, I've, uh, you know, it's always surprising to me too. How many people tell me like, they're like hardcore crypto believers and like, you know, I don't know. I mean, I even have people like come to my meetups and they're like, yeah, I put my life savings into ETH. Now to be fair, these are like usually like younger kids or whatever. I mean, like substantial, like right out of college. Um, so they probably don't have crazy amounts of life savings. So, you know, if they're dumping a few thousand dollars when you're early twenties, it's not so crazy. Right. Um, so a little bit of context, um, but then like, I mean, they've never used it. They've never done an actual transaction. They don't know what MetaMask is. Um, and so it, 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 I mean, there is this industry disconnect sometime with just people that like claim to be all in on it, but like, they've really, they've just, you know, they're just repli- they're, they're just gambling on it. Right. Cause they don't really even use it at all in any basic sense. Right. Um, whereas like, you know, even if you, don't trust yourself for key management, which, you know, of course this lattice one will help you out. Um, like you should at least buy $5 worth and, you know, use it on MetaMask and then you can put $40 in there every month and buy grid with that and then pay your power bill at 80% off, you know, like it's a no brainer, Yeah. but I, it's, you know, getting people to use crypto is, is hard people did it for those those token sales Mm -hmm. you know back in 2017 but um yeah you know education is is a a process and in the end like if you can use a grid token to uh take advantage of like wholesale prices and electricity then there's absolutely no excuse not to like a penny saved is a penny earned and i think like the people who succeed the most long term in the crypto space are people who develop like frugal conservative financial habits that are easy to maintain over long periods of time because the only way you really lose out in this space is if you're forced to liquidate your undervalued tokens in an inopportune time because of financial stress and like having utility underlying a token, having it be redeemable in something as basic as electricity, like these are the things that make me most optimistic because these are sustainable business models that 
won't fluctuate based on um, like speculative market cycles. And I think this is the long-term future of the entire industry. Um, it's also like nearly an impossibly high bar to hold any crypto project on. And the fact that Grid Plus has already met it, it's uh, actual utility token that's actually redeemable, that's actually like providing value to people. Well, I live in a different part of the country, so technically I'm just a speculator, but I'm supportive of the mission and the code base and the product because I should hopefully be getting mine soon. I've already been experimenting with the key cards that they've had um, because they partnered with Status. And um, as you were saying, that uh, miners have these like ledgers or uh, treasures plugged into like their mining hardware and they're constantly signing tokens well i actually had a status key card hooked up to my uh, ethereum node at home and i was basically like remote accessing my computer and signing with the hardware-based key card by entering the uh, the pin for my key card to basically handle uh, Ethereum mainnet transactions. Granted, I wasn't like actually storing most of my value. I It was like a hot cold wallet because it was a cold wallet that was plugged into my computer at all times. But this is basically the future. And once I have an actual Lattice Plus, which has a tamper-proof mesh enclosing its, uh, its actual processor, and um, like it has a secure touchscreen, which requires me to enter a pin if uh, my transactions don't meet the conditions of a certain smart contract that's also self-contained in the unit, then like I can't wait to actually have that plugged in and running and connected with the Ethereum node that I'm running as well. Like that's the kind of IoT future I see. It's just, you don't see a lot of these um, and I'm super impressed that they have these use cases to begin with. You know, there's a lot of things being built still, like to make all these, all this crazy vision that, you know, people were hyping the heck out of in 2017. And I, you know, the foundations weren't there yet. And I think the foundations are starting to be there. As you said, like, I mean, like the tamper proof hardware, like that's a pretty important one to like, make this be able to go mainstream so you know we're, we're getting there slowly but surely yep awesome like, that's a cool that's a good place to end fun episode yep and yeah. uh it was great talking to you again this week and looking forward to talking again next week adios peace